0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, How many of you were here last night at the the movie night deal? That was great to all of you because there's a lot of work that went into that. Um, We had some new faces there last night. Thank you for doing that. To those of you that made chili, there were five different types of chili. I tried all five of them, um, and they were all excellent. And so uh, there's rumor that our January kind of family meeting is going to be a potluck after church that will be a chili cook-off, probably January 29th. So if you're a chili cooker, uh, get yourself ready for that. Um, But don't get your hopes up, because I'm going to beat all of you with my chili if it's an official chili cook-off, because I'm really good at making chili just saying all right go ahead and stand up and i'm going to read the passage for today and um and we're gonna we're gonna get started in this message luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8 and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all can be seated. We've been in a series this fall on presence, on really what's the theme of the Bible is God's presence and his presence with us and our relationship with him. And in the in the beginning and in the garden with Adam and Eve, we've got perfect the perfect presence of God, perfect relationship with God. It is the thing that we're all looking for, what we're made for, What we will not be satisfied until that is restored. And then we see how... Um, sin, our decision to trust ourselves more than God, creates distance between us and God and then us and each other. And with the story of Noah, how that eventually creates its own hell. And then in Abraham, he makes the promise to restore that perfect presence uh, with him. But now we live in a disrupted presence, and so we went through some stories that look at that disrupted presence. And, and knowing when we started the series that Advent fits in with this, because we're Advent leads to the the physical incarnation of God in Christ, and so he's made himself present with us again uh, at the Advent. But as Ken talked about last week, and I alluded to the week before, prior to Jesus showing up on the scene, there is 400 years of silence. Um, Someone pointed this out to me, there's two two times, between Genesis and Exodus, there's 400 years of silence. And then between Malachi and Matthew, uh, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there's 400 years um, where we don't have re- anything recorded of what God does with Israel. And so that's four, 400 years is a long time. <laughs> it's 400 years of no prophetic messages, 400 years of, as Ken went through turmoil for the nation of Israel, 400 years uh, of waiting. But really, like 2,000 years of waiting because Abraham had gotten the message Um, that he was going to be a great nation, and they were going to get a land, and all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed through them. And so that's 2,000 years, and who who knows how many thousands of years from the time when God said to Eve in the garden, there's going to be enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent, and he's going to bruise the the head of the the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so they've been waiting for this for a long time. And I started thinking about, um, you know, these stories are, so we're going to do a series in Romans next year. We've never done that. It's been 16 years as a church, and we thought we should just bite the bullet and do this because it'll be great. We're going to. These stories, we return to year after year after year and sit in them year after year after year. And so this story where God gives the message to the shepherds first, like just sitting this, I started thinking about messages that you deliver that you know, that are a long time in the making and and the how and the when and the who of communicating this type of message. So how many of you are watching the World Cup right now in any way, shape, or form? I'm like all in on this. And and part of the great thing about it is that it's an every four-year event. And so there's a whole lot of anticipation that comes with, a, with the World Cup. And so there's messages and stories in that that get lived out that uh, there's excitement about it because it's taken a long time. If you... I was going through my email this past week, and I had an email from October that I needed to return, It doesn't sound good. It wasn't good, but it was, um, it was um, a woman that came here really sporadically a couple years ago, and she had started a recurring donation through the online thing, and she was just letting me know that she was stopping because she had moved to the beach probably like two years ago, and so I, I emailed her back and said, hey, I'm... Sorry, this is taking me long. I looked at it immediately. I didn't respond immediately. Got into email purgatory, and then I came back to it. And it wasn't a super critical thing, but I did want to let her know that I really appreciated it. But there's a tone that you have when you return a late email or text or voicemail or, or whatever it is. You know, um, that made me think about. Maybe you've ever seen these stories about library books that have been returned after 50 years being overdue for 50 years. Have you ever seen one of those stories where like the library has decided not to charge late fees, and someone's like, "Sweet." And so they drop off a book that's like 40 years overdue with a little note that says, hey, sorry, just got busy. You know, like, what am I going to do? I found one this week. This was the best. So there's a library in New York. It, it, there's a, a group in New York called the New York Society, and they have a library. And they were doing some, um, they were, like, going through their records um, a few years ago, and they, they have a, an old Um, set of books called Common Debates. There's 14 volumes, and they realized they were missing volume 12 of 14, so they looked to see who was the last person to check it out, and on October 5th, 1789, one George Washington had checked out volume 12 of Common Debates, and so they contacted Mount Vernon, and Mount Vernon, his estate, was like, looked through everything to see if they could find it, and they couldn't, so they went and found an old volume 12 for Common Debates and sent it back to him with a note, apologizing for being so late in returning it. You know, like, there's a way that you you do that when you're late. I don't know. I don't think God is necessarily late. It might seem like that to us. But how you handle this bit of information matters. Like, we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. I don't think Jesus is going to come back in the clouds and say, hey, guys, sorry I'm late. I was binge-watching The Chosen or whatever Jesus would binge-watch. You know what I mean? But, like, how you deliver it, Matters who you give it to. Information is power, right? And so who you give it to matters. Gossip is a thing because you feel like you've got this information, and who you deliver that to is really matters. Um, Leading an organization, sometimes you get information that you're not gonna like put out there all at once. You you know, you're gonna you're gonna put it out over time. And and there are times when I know that means something to people. And so people that have invested a whole lot into the church, sometimes I'll give out information. Um, we don't have lots of juicy bits of information, but, but you'll, that's just how you think about information. Um, sometimes if your message is controversial, you'll run it by a few people before you broadcast it, uh, you know, publicly to see what happens with it. You're careful with it. I thought about, you know, how people start churches now is you see a lot of yard signs uh, for people that are starting churches or you get mailers or they'll have email campaigns. Then I thought, like, social media... Is it right? So if you want to get a message out, you get a social media what? An influencer, um, which is a term that I don't think existed five years ago. But now if you Google social media influencer, you're going to be there for a while because uh, there's a lot going on. And that's how we'll put a message out is find somebody that's got a big platform. And that's always been the case. Um, here's a, one of my favorite books is called The Tipping Point by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, and it's about the tipping point for movements or ideas and how they go viral. I don't think he used that that term like 15, 20 years ago when he wrote the book, but he's got a section on how there's people that are connectors, that just know everybody. There's mavens. They don't know everybody, but they know things, and they get excited about them. I feel like on Sunday mornings, I, I'm like a maven. Like, I try and, you know, Find something I'm super excited about and give it to you guys in the Word. And then there's salespeople. But there's always been influencers. There's always been connectors. So he tells a story of a guy named William Dawes. Has anybody heard of William Dawes? Uh, William Dawes was the guy that on the eve of the American Revolution got the scoop that the British were coming. And so he rode through the Massachusetts countryside and told everybody the British were coming. And he raised the militia so the next day we could fire the shot heard around the world and... and and send the British back over the ocean, right? And you're thinking it wasn't William Dawes, it was who? It's Paul Revere. Paul Revere was the other guy that on the eve of the American Revolution got the scoop that the British were coming and rode across the Massachusetts countryside and mobilized a militia to fire the shot heard around the world. Now the reason you know Paul Revere and you don't know William Dawes is because Paul Revere was a connector and William Dawes wasn't. So he just got on a horseback ride And Paul Revere, like, started a movement because he knew everybody. If Paul Revere had had social media, look out, because he was that type of guy. And that's who we would go to to spread a message like this. Um, this This is the ultimate message for all time. Unto you a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. The wait is over. And... I thought through like, the options that he had to give the message to. You know, uh, Rome rules the day. Caesar is the most powerful man in the world. Caesar would seem to be the person that you would go straight to the top um, to get that message out. Corinius is the governor, the Roman governor of this area. He would be an option. Herod was the one the Romans allowed to be the king of the Jews. He would be an option. It was a theocracy, so the religious leaders would be an option if you really wanted to get the message out. I thought, if you have a really important message in that day—a controversial but life-changing message, a message you know is about to turn the world upside down—a message that people have been waiting for you to give, and that they may think you're a little late with—you know who you don't go, uh, you don't go to if you have that message. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, in line, in a manger. Do, you know, do you want to know who the last people anybody's going to listen to with your message? It's the last people are going to be these shepherds. And that's who he chooses. And that is stunning to me. <laughs> uh, over the years, I've read a lot about shepherds because it's, you know, it's throughout the Bible. And there's positive things. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so God is used, is described as a shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. And so he's described as a shepherd. But But so many times in the Bible and in that day, shepherds were were like the underclass, not even low class, but like the underclass. In in the story of Joseph in Genesis, when he ends up in Egypt and his family comes down, uh, he tells them like, hey, let's keep the shepherd thing on the down low because the Egyptians hate shepherds. They despise them. They disdain them. Um, In Jesus' day rabbis would commentary in the old testament so we've got some of that commentary and they regarded shepherds as dishonest and prone to violating the jewish law one passage describes them as incompetent another one says no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit Uh, philo who is a jewish sage in egypt at the same time of jesus wrote that shepherds are held to be mean and inglorious uh, there's a more contemporary author who's gone through these documents and says that shepherds were deprived of all civil rights. They couldn't fulfill judicial offices or be admitted in court as witnesses. Which is like like felons in our day. Um, he wrote to buy wool, milk, or a baby goat from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. Uh, uh, and he wrote, the rabbis in that day asked with amazement how, in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, one can explain why God is called my shepherd. That's who God gives the message to. I started thinking about, and this is a little dicey, but like who that would be now. If, if God were to find a comparable thought of group of people to the shepherds, um, who would it be that, that we really put, look down on like that? John and I were driving back from Um, the mountains last week, and he was talking about the church that he pastored in Johnson City for a long time and saying if he had to do that over again, like, they ended up in in the mountains in Appalachia with just unbelievable extreme poverty, and he would have focused his church more on meeting the needs of those folks, but those were literally hillbillies, and those are the types of people that, like, he would give the message to. Uh, In our day, more and more over the last few years, there are people at, at, at um, like highway exits or street corners, all the time. It seems like the homeless population has just blown up. I was there's a Lidl around the street from my house, and I was going to get something the other night, and there was a family outside the Lidl, um, you know, that had a sign said "Please help." And I, those are folks that that are on the uh, they're on the underside of things, and I think that's who we would give it to. I mentioned felons, like that's the comparable what? Migrant workers, probably. People that, that we wouldn't listen to. We don't listen to. We don't pay attention to. They become like background stuff. That's what the shepherds were, and that's who Jesus gave the message to. And I don't think about this much, but like meditating on this passage, I realized, like, I think God would come to social media influencers or megachurch pastors or politicians or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, people with a huge platform, and an opportunity to get the message out as quickly and as broadly and that people would listen to. But instead, he goes to these shepherds, and the whole story is so low-key. A virgin birth to an unwed teenage mother from a podunk town, and the contrast between what we would intuitively do and what he does is stunning to me. And I think it should be to you, and I think it means something. So I'm just going to give you three things that I think about why he chose the shepherds and the first one is this that the shepherds feared god the shepherds feared god so in the same region there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear on the one hand this is kind of what happens when you see an angel as you're filled with great fear and in these gospel accounts, um, angels appear to Zechariah, and they appear to Mary, and there's a pattern with it that there's an appearance, and there's fear, and a command not to fear, and then uh, a pronouncement of news, and a sign that will confirm the news, and so it's running according to um, a script. I think how, how much you fear the one bringing the message is reflected in what you do with the message that you've received. So sometimes we can receive a message and have some fear, but it doesn't lead to any action I started thinking about um, climate change, and like the amount you fear that message is is like evidenced by what you do with the message and how much you act upon the message. I don't really want to get into that. <laughs> uh, but I'll say this, like part of that for me is predicated on people giving messages over long periods of times the catastrophes that didn't happen. So when I was a kid, I can specifically remember hearing this, that we were going to run out of fossil fuels in 20 years. It's been more than 20 years since I've been a kid, and we seem to have an abundant supply of fossil fuels, and that, you know, is part of the problem. And so that didn't happen. Those same people told me that we would be using the metric system within 10 years, and so you don't need to worry about inches and yards and miles and stuff like that that didn't happen. This book came out right before I was born, The Population Bomb. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this book. The the little sub thing there is while you're reading these words, four people will have died of starvation, most of them children. And so it was saying back then, like, we're going to have a population problem. We won't have the resources to care for all these people, and so we need to do something about the population. And people reacted to that. Like, the Chinese had the one-child policy, which now has Like, where they've got 40 million more men than women, which is an insane problem if you think about that for a second. I really worried about this to the point, I think I've said this once in a sermon over 15 years, but so I, there's a point when I was in high school where I thought, I wonder, like, how big this population problem is, and if you took all the people in the world, what size, where you could fit them. Like, if you just gave everybody a couple square feet and just put all 8 billion people together, what state would they fit in? You got a guess? Texas, any other guesses? You've heard this before, haven't you? Or else you did the math yourself. It's like half of Rhode Island. You could fit 8 billion people. Because I thought we could work this like a snow globe. God could just shake it up. We'd all end up in different places. I thought that'd be fun. Uh, Like, how, how, how scared you are of a message is indicated by the action that you take. And, and the shepherds acted because they feared the one that gave them the message. The other options for who he could have given the message to, they didn't fear the message. So Herod would be an option. He was the king of the Jews. Herod was legend, man, and the stuff that he did and accomplished, he could get, he was a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk in his day with the things that he built. But God did, um, the, the magi, the wise men came to Herod And say, hey, we saw a star, and um, we know that the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews, and I haven't had a baby lately, so what are you talking about? And sends them out. It says, Herod heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with them, assembling all chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so the wise men go and find Jesus in Bethlehem. And then God comes to them in a dream and says, don't trust Herod, leave another way. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod got the message. Herod did not fear the Lord. And that's why he wasn't the one to deliver the message. Pilate didn't fear the Lord. And he was the subsequent, one of the subsequent Roman governors over this area. And so towards the end of Jesus' life, Pilate is the one in in whose hands Jesus' life was, because the Romans controlled the area. They gave the Jews... Um, some ability to execute their own laws, but not to execute people. They couldn't. They didn't have the death penalty, but Rome did. So that's why they bring him to Pilate. And, and Pilate goes back and forth with Jesus. And at one point, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, I think very pragmatically, what is truth or why does truth matter? Because in this case, it wasn't pragmatic for Pilate. He did not fear the Lord. And after he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and said, I don't find any guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you from the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they said, no, not this man, but Barabbas. And Pilate ends up washing his hands of it. And he has some fear of the Lord, but his fear doesn't lead to a tangible amount of action. In the Gospels, uh, at one point Jesus um, declares these woes on the cities of, um, I think it's Bethsaida and Chorazin, because he says, I did all these miracles in your cities. And if those miracles had been done in inside, and Sidon, they would have repented already. But you didn't. Because they saw it, but they didn't fear the Lord. The religious who trusted their own self-righteousness didn't fear the Lord. The scribes and Pharisees didn't really fear the Lord. The disciples did. Um, they interacted with Jesus. And Peter's first interaction with Jesus, you know, Jesus borrows his boat to give a sermon And then uh, comes back in and says, hey, go fishing again at the wrong time and the wrong way. And Peter goes out, hauls in the biggest catch of fish he's ever had and realized Jesus is something completely different. And says, away from me, for I am a sinful man. That is the fear of the Lord. And he gave up his life to follow the Lord. The shepherds feared God. That's why they got the message. People have power, tend to fear losing power more than they fear God. People who have power tend to fear losing power more than they fear God. Most of us in this room have, in our world, a great amount of power. We have money. We have education. We have abundance. We have more than just enough to meet our needs. We have status. We have options. And and this is where I start asking myself, if he was given that message today, would he, give it, would he give it to me? Would he give it to us? And would we fear him enough to do with it what the shepherds did with it? Because people who don't have power don't have as much to lose. And so my, my second point on the shepherds is they didn't have a lot to lose. Um, the angel said to them, and that's why they got the message, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Lord. It's a Greek word, kurios. And this will be a sign for you. Find a baby wrapped in swaddly clothes, lying in a manger. Um, so he is a Savior, he is a Messiah, and he is the Lord. In order to appreciate a Savior, you have to, you have to be willing to admit that you need to be saved. So this week, um, in the weekly email, which, if you're new, you should sign up for. If you have trouble getting that, just let us know, and we'll we'll get you hooked up. But I put it's just something I've been um, paying attention to throughout the week. And this week it was a podcast called the Confronting Christianity Podcast. There's a book that's been out on the shelf for a while now called um, I think it's Twelve Hard Questions the world's largest religion needs to be able to needs to be able to confront by Rebecca McLaughlin, who I think is a great voice right now um, to our culture about, you know, the, ver- the veracity of the Christian faith. And so she started a podcast that I don't even know about, but Micah told me about. And the podcast is, the episode I listened to was great. And it was about, um, it was about why, I think it was titled, Why God Cares Who We Sleep With. And it was Rebecca McLaughlin and um, Kyle Worley is the host. And then there was another guy or another woman whose story is, it's worth listening for her story um, she went to Yale, same-sex attracted, living up living out a lesbian lifestyle. And she became a Christian, not because someone spent a lot of time witnessing to her, but because she stole a copy of Mere Christianity off of a friend's bookshelf in college and read the book and got an overwhelming sense of the presence of God, and it totally changed her life. And they get in this conversation about the emphasis right now in culture being, being about being your most authentic self, and you have to be your most authentic self, and the presumption that being your most authentic self is a really good thing. And one of them suggested, and I've said this in different ways over the years, but she said, you know how in comics they have a thought bubble? Like, and then what is going on in their mind? She's like, what if we had a thought bubble over our heads at all times, and so people could just see what we're thinking all the time? On a scale of 1 to 10, how horrifying is that thought? right, like a 23, and they're talking in, in context of does God care who we, why does God care who we sleep with, so sexual attraction, and like if those thoughts were all over the place, or, or the converse of those, like if you found someone unattractive, and all the judgy things that are going on in your mind, and their point was like, our, that is our most authentic self. That's it. Is that a good or a bad thing? I don't want that out there. That's a bad thing, and we, like, we can't, you could say, like, lighten up, that's just who we are. Like, we can't change it, but that is exactly the point. <gasps> we can't change it, but it needs to be changed. And only he can change it. We need to be saved from our most authentic self in so many ways. Um, but but we can pull it together on the outside. And this makes me think of Jesus saying, um, you clean the." You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is, you know, full of awful things. We can clean it up enough on the outside that we think it's not a problem on the inside and that we don't need a Savior, but we need a Savior. The shepherds weren't cleaned up on the outside. They had no problem admitting that they needed a Savior, and so the message mattered to them. Um, he is the Lord. That, that word, kurios, is where Caesar comes from. It's where the word Kaiser, um, the German Lord, which incidentally, I don't know if anybody saw this, but someone tried to overthrow the democratically elected German government and reinstitute the Kaiser this past week. So there you go. Um, It's where it comes from. And Luke sets up this uh, interaction between the angels and the shepherds. Right before this, the beginning of Luke 2, in those days, a, a decree went out from Caesar, Augustus, that all the world should be registered. That's a census. It was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered. So three times, census, 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 registered, 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 which is a way of saying the Caesar, um, like, had the whole world in his hands. He controlled everybody. And Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary as betrothed, who was with child, And so Caesar could move people around like, you know, pawns on a chessboard, wherever he wanted them to go. But in the midst of that, Joseph goes up. It says that he is of the lineage of David, who was also a king. Um, And so while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. He starts with Caesar and he ends up with Jesus, who there's no place at the end. Caesar controls everything, but there's no place for Jesus. And he is setting this up like, uh, like, a, like an old Clint Eastwood spaghetti western showdown type thing between the Caesar, who thinks he's the king, and Jesus, who is the true king. And Caesar was king, ruler of the world in ways that we cannot conceive. His, um, his great uncle was Julius Caesar. His, his name meant Commander Caesar, Son of God, the Venerable. There's an inscription that they've found recently in Turkey about him Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of a God, Imperator of Land and Sea, the benefactor and Savior of the whole world. People would say there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved but that of Caesar. People would greet each other in the streets by saying, Caesar is Lord. They announced the birthday of Caesar each year as the gospel, the good news to the empire, and it was cause for a party. And here comes little old Jesus. and the language, parallels are obvious. Jesus is the son of God. He is the true savior of the world. The birth of Jesus is the true gospel. And he sets up this contrast. There are these people at the top. But God says, but I'm starting down here at the bottom. And you people at the top are going to come along and you're welcome to come along. um, But the people with less to lose are the ones that are more likely to follow. And that's echoed throughout the bible and in the new testament when jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven i thought about that a bit this week and i thought it's probably um they value the kingdom of heaven those who are poor in spirit because they're not so full of themselves and obsessed with their own kingdom and so there's more space for the kingdom of god to mean everything Uh, in Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant um, than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, That seems to be like an indictment on the way we do things right now because I think that's what we're encouraged towards. He continues, who though he was in the form of God, in an account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I thought about a, a parable that Jesus told, um, the parable of the wedding feast, where he invited all these important guests to a wedding feast, and they all said they'd come, but when it came time for the wedding and his servants went out to get them, they were all too busy, and so he said, go out into the highways and byways and get the people that just have nothing better to do, and they're going to come to the wedding feast. I thought about this passage in Corinthians where Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." I spent a little bit of time, like, going through social media influencers in our day. I just got curious about this. And so um, some, some soccer players were up there. Ronaldo and Messi and Neymar are influencers. Taylor Swift and Britney Spears. There were certain categories of influencers. I've never heard of Addison Rae or Huda Kattan. I don't know. I, they said the, maybe the biggest one is some an African guy named Kabi Lamy. Who has life hack videos has anybody seen this stuff he has one about a banana and i was like this is the most popular video i do not understand this at all uh like it didn't i don't get it you know there are fitness influencers there's people like kylie jenner and kim kardashian who i think is popular just because she's popular she made a naughty videotape a long time ago Uh, and the whole thing has turned into high school again or worse middle school And looking through those influencers, I thought, man, they got a lot. They got a lot going. For, they got a kingdom. Um, there aren't a lot of ugly social media influencers. Uh, they're they're now rich. A lot of them have like just natural talent and charisma. Um, apparently, to get them to you know rep whatever you're doing, you got to pay them quite a quite a bit of money. And I thought, that's right. That's why Jesus didn't give the message to the influencers of their day. Like they already had too much to lose. They'd be too conflicted, and um, I was listening this week to another podcast about celebrity pastors and um, just the the um, the things to be con- the dangers in that in creating celebrity in a ministry uh, environment, and they got talking about how we have a desire for Christian social media influencers because we think that'll that'll help, you know. And I remember, do you remember when Kanye was a Christian for a minute? During COVID, and he was leading worship at some church. And he came out with an album, was like, I can worship to that album, you know? And I remember telling my kids, look, Kanye is, I was doing it. Like, if these people up here, and God just doesn't think that way. And Kanye being a Christian social media influencer did not work out well for us, Um. That's not the way he does it. He went to the shepherds because they didn't have a lot to lose. And honestly, we don't have a lot to lose either, but we can get fooled into thinking that we do. And I'll make one last point about the shepherds. They were willing um, to go share that message with others. So the angels went away from from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go. (laughs) Let's go. Uh, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known. I never read it like this, but I wonder if this is how it is. To us. He made it known to us. And they went with haste right away and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them which made me wonder if all our nativity scenes are wrong, because they all have Mary and Joseph and a baby and some animals and the shepherds, and that may be the wise men, you know what I mean? But all who heard it, which I think there's more than that, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. Uh, Over time, I made an observation that Uh, When it comes to finances, the people that are the quickest to share what they have are poor people. And so that's counterintuitive because you think the more you have, the more likely that you are to share. Um, But but it's also true that the more you have to lose. And people that have been poor and gone without don't want other people. They have more empathy and they don't want other people to go without. And so they're more likely um, to share because they don't want other people to be in that situation. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I think that that's what he's talking about. When you realize how much you need Jesus, and so therefore how much those around you also need Jesus, you're more likely to share the good news about Jesus. I don't know, maybe the test of like we're like the shepherds or not is how much we share the message with the people around us. And if we don't, why we don't. Um, And if it's because we fear losing power more than we fear God, or because we just have too much we think uh, to lose. I don't think Jesus today would give the message to the super busy. He probably wouldn't give it to the rich. He probably wouldn't give it to really important people and definitely not self-important people, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being busy or having stuff or being important. Like, I, I know all of you are that, you know, and like to a degree that's really good that we be urgent about what's going on in our lives, and we have our needs met, so we have things, and we're vital to the people around you, but all those things can be a trap and can lead to not fearing God the way that we ought to and having too much to lose to follow God and not being willing to share that message with the people around us, either because we've got too much to lose or we're so wrapped up in what we have that it doesn't seem as important. I found this quote from um, Martin Luther that I'll end with. He said, Who then are those to whom this joyful news is to be proclaimed? Those who are faint-hearted and feel the burden of their sins like the shepherds to whom the angels proclaim the message, letting the great lords in Jerusalem who do not accept it Go on sleeping. I'm going to ask the band to come back up here. I'm going to have you guys um, just close your eyes and bow your heads for a minute. And I'm going to say a few more things then pray over you. We're going to take communion when we do that. Um, Glenn and Debbie are going to be up this morning. And they will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. And you don't have to say anything to that. It can be thanks be to God or amen or whatever you want to say. Um, But we are receiving the body and blood of Christ this morning. And the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim is not get get your act together and then God will accept you. Um, Because that leads to a self-righteousness that makes us think we don't really need God. The gospel is that you cannot heal yourself from your sin problem, Um, that that thought bubble is probably the most accurate reflection of your most authentic self, (laughs) and you can't fix it. And whether you realize it or not, you are the lowly. And if anyone really knew what was going on inside of us, we would be the outcast. We're not as far away from the shepherds as we think that we are. But the gospel is that God so loved the world that unto us a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. And he came so that ultimately his body would be broken for us, and his blood would be shed for us. And he would offer us a salvation um, that we could not come up with on our own. Father, thank you for uh, this story and for this scene and for these shepherds whose names we do not know, Lord. And that these shepherds uh, didn't have too much to lose, and that these shepherds feared you more than they feared the opinions of those around them, probably because they know they'd already lost that game. Um, And these shepherds were willing to share that message. And I pray that you would convict us in whatever place that we need to be convicted, that we are more like those shepherds than we know, and we are probably pretending to be something else, Lord. And that you would restore to us uh, an accurate view of the things that we have that we could lose tomorrow and they would be nothing compared to what we have in you. And that our fear of you, Lord, and respect for you and love for you and trust in you would lead us to bring this message to the people around us. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.